to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 67, recorded November 16th, 2011. So this is our 14th episode of the 1990s. So this month, or this week, we're in, what is it, May, June, and July? Yep. Of 1991? Yes. Yeah, so we're doing uh, 19, 20, 21, and the first issue, unfortunately, is the last Peter David book of the regular series. Ah. So... I mean, we'll carry it, or does he come back later? Uh, he comes back to do a mini series, which is the big crossover with the original series and the next gen that we're going right. to cover in episode seventy-one. All right, and then he'll be back for annual number two, which we will cover in episode seventy-five. But then after that, I don't think we see him again in DC Comics. I mean, he's done some other stuff, you know, like the the New Frontiers and stuff after this, but. And, yeah, this, and, a, and apparently a Halo comic book. Oh, yeah, he did. He did uh, Hell Jumpers for uh, Marvel. Go figure. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a sci-fi guy. He is, and very prolific. Yep, I like him. Yep. So, uh, want to just jump straight into it there, Ken? I say let's go. All right, so I get the uh, privileges of the synopsis for this one. For issue number 19, entitled Once a Hero. And again, came out in May 1991. The writing staff is writer Peter David, penciler Gordon Purcell, inker Arnie Starr, letterer Bob Pinaha, colorist Tom McCraw, and editor is Robert Greenberger. So the cover is a pretty impressive piece of art. It shows the seven members, or the seven main members of the Enterprise crew, uh, standing on a rocky outcrop uh, with the uh, transporter effect engulfing them. And then looming overhead is the Enterprise, quite large, so it's obviously in a very, very, very low orbit, but it's, it's actually a fantastic piece of work. I, I love this, this, this cover. So the story starts off with Kirk in his quarters agonizing over a eulogy that he's writing for a person by the name of Ensign Lee. He is at a loss of words because he realizes that he did not even know this young man. And the young man even died in order to save Kirk's life. So McCoy joins Kirk and Kirk relates the problems that he's having with the speech and the fact that he does not even know his crew as he once did. Uh, they're just a blur of faces now and not even real people anymore in his mind. He calls them ciphers. So they're just basically a, a job and not a person anymore. So McCoy challenges him to do more. That, that's his advice there. So uh, a little bit later, Kirk is in a meeting with the security officer chief, Chekhov. And Chekhov admits that he too does not know Lee very well since Lee joined the ship uh, after they les left uh, a starbase recently, and they went straight from that starbase to the planet in which he died, 
the planet's name is Dinar 4. So Chekhov uh, does retail his last encounter with Mr. Lee or Ensign Lee, and then we go into a little flashback. So Lee and two seasoned security officers are suiting up for the Dinar 4 mission. The two security guards are giving the rookie a hard time. Once they're suited up, they meet with Kirk and the other senior officers in the briefing room to go over the mission. Kirk informs them that they are going to be investigating a missing Sandarian ship called the Arcade. They believe that the ship may have been attacked by a race called the Hagi. And it is possible that they might have made it to a nearby planet, that being Dinar 4. Ensign Lee asks a question about what level of alert they should be in at the time of the beaming. And then Kirk publicly belittles him for asking the question, and once the meeting is over, Chekhov also tears into him, stating that ensigns are not paid to think, merely to do as they're told. And then we come back to the present, where Chekhov finishes his story by saying that he regrets those last words to Ensign Lee, and he was planning on apologizing to him once he returned from the mission. So later, Kirk is paying a visit to the two security guard officers that were Lee's co-workers. One of the co-workers goes on a very long and a little jaded monologue about how they are security men and not security blankets. He tells Kirk that they are the ones that go in and do the work and that they do not have time to waste whining about their lost comrades like officers can. To this, Kirk threatens to throw him into the brig for insubordination. Fortunately, the other security guard is able to calm things down, and he says that Lee was a good kid and he had the making of a good security man if it had not been for the incident on Dinar 4. So this causes Kirk to start thinking back about what happened on Dinar 4. So uh, we go into another flashback. We see Spock, the three security men, and Kirk beam down to Dinar 4. They find the downed ship, and it is encased in a force field. Kirk walks up to the force field and calls out for the leader of the arcade. A man with long flowing hair and a pretty snazzy looking beard walks up to the field and introduces himself as Ventura, the leader of the arcade. Spock advises him that their records show that the arcade was actually commanded by Captain Rogers. Ventura states that Rogers did not survive the, the crash landing. Kirk requests that the shields be lowered so that they can go in and investigate. Ventura refuses to drop the shields because he says that it could be a trick and that once they drop the shields, they could be uh, beamed up by the Hagee. So Kirk offers to take someone from the ship up to the Enterprise to prove that it's not a trick. Uh, Ventura refuses, so Kirk calls Sulu and orders him to... Uh, place a phaser strike on the shields to bring them down by sheer force. His logic is that the Hagee uh, would not have that kind of power power to do so. Uh, so that would be his proof that they are indeed a Federation starship. Ventura relents and lets the shields down. He then gives Kirk a tour of the ship, explaining how their engines were attacked um, and damaged, and that's what forced them to crash land. Uh, Kirk orders Scotty to beam down and check out the engines, despite Ventura's objection. 
Scotty is checking out the engines, and he realizes that there's no damage. Before he can report this to the captain, he is attacked by a crewman with a metal pipe. Kirk and Lee hear the struggle, and they rush in to help. As they come into the room, Ventura pulls his phaser out and shoots at Kirk. Uh, just before the phaser's about to hit Kirk, though, Lee jumps in front of it and takes the blast in the chest. Uh, this gives Kirk enough time to unholster his own weapon, and he stuns Ventura. McCoy orders a transport of himself and Lee up to uh, sickbay. Uh, however, the energy field is back up, and they cannot leave. Lee dies in Spock's arms while Spock was attempting to soothe his pain with a mind meld. Spock and the, or excuse me, Scotty and the pipe man are still fighting, and just when it looks like Scotty's about to lose, Chekhov shows up and knocks out the pipe man. So then we flash back to the present, and Kirk seeks out Spock. He asks what Lee's final thoughts were. Spock says that he was only thinking about stopping the pain. When pressed about what Lee's final thoughts were, Spock eventually says that uh, Lee's final thought was, I can't wait to go swimming again. So Kirk Kirk then pays a visit to Ventura in the brig. He states that they have figured out what Ventura was actually doing, that he was actually the Hagee, and that they took over the arcade, but the arcade's real captain somehow booby-trapped the ship and forced it to crash. Ventura says that he knows that the Federation law, or he knows about the Federation law, and that he knows that there is no death penalty. Kirk informs him that he's not going to be tried in a Federation court, that he's actually going to be tried in a Sander court, uh, since they attacked a Sander ship, and that they would face trial for all their deeds, including the murder of Ensign Lee. And then he reminds Ventura that the punishment for murder is to having your skin peeled back and acid poured over the wound. So we're now at the eulogy that Kirk's giving for Ensign Lee, and it is a long-winded speech. And it's basically him explaining how no one really knew Lee. Uh, He even goes through the uh, standard Federation uh, form letter, including the insert cadet's name here, which is... A little odd, but basically he's trying to drive a point home that this uh, this person lived and breathed and even died for the crew, and yet nobody even knew who he was. So he challenges everybody to never allow that to happen again, and he finishes it off by saying that they should always make time for one another because they never know how long they have to be around themselves. The end. A nice story. Yeah, it was it was a good story. What I found particularly interesting about it is after so many years and so many away missions and so many dead red shirt guys <laughs> that that just get, you know, killed, you know, get the lerpa in the chest or whatever, it's kind of interesting to actually be focused on them for a change and about the loss of them. So I th- I thought I thought it was good. I mean, I wouldn't want to I w- wouldn't want to read uh, issues like this all the time, but it's nice to uh, sing uh, of the unsung hero. Right now, I mean, there's there's quite a few incidences in the original series where Kirk goes off on how valuable all the all the crew members are and things like that. And and isn't there even an episode where he's doing something like this, writing a eulogy or something like that? 
I, I think you're right. I think there are isolated times when they when they take a breath to do something like this, but it's pretty rare. I agree. I mean, it's it's pretty much like they said in Galaxy Quest uh, when Guy was saying, "Wait a minute, I'm the guy that gets killed in the first five minutes to prove it's a serious situation." <laughs> True, and that's pretty much the function they performed. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, they were always pretty cavalier once the person died. I mean, once you got uh, Bone saying, he's dead, Jim, uh, <laughs> that, that, that body was pretty much just scenery from that point on. Exactly. You moved on with the story. Yeah. Of course, in the original pilot, Pike is saying to the good doctor all kinds of uh, remorsefulness about having to pick who lives and who dies. But, uh, yeah, a lot of it's pretty. Let's move on and have the adventure. Right. No one knows this guy. Who cares? Yeah, so it was kind of interesting. And it's also kind of interesting that, I mean, Peter David must have known that this was going to be his last issue. I mean, even if you read the letters column, uh, Robert Greenberger is, is pretty pretty up clear and up front that this is his last issue for a while. Uh, because they knew that Howard Weinstein was going to be doing the series from that point on. So I don't know what was going on, why Peter David was leaving, you know, whether it was his own choice or or what, if there was too many creative differences. Right. But it's just kind of weird that this is this is Peter David's last story. And, and especially that last line where it's like, you know, don't take things for granted because you never know how long you're going to be there. I, uh-huh. I kind of wondered if that had a double meaning or something. Uh-huh. Well, how long do authors stick around? In your typical comic book anyway. I mean, do they, uh, I mean, because this is pretty much week after week after week, Peter David was doing uh, the issues. And they were right. great in general. They were, they were very good, top quality uh, writing. But how often does that happen in the world of comics? Where you would have the same author? Yeah. I mean, years. Well, I mean, you sometimes go, you know, several years with the same, the same writer. Oh, several years. Wow. Right. Okay. okay. Well. I mean, uh, definitely in the Star Trek world, they tend to mix things up a lot. Well, we've also been jumping around a lot. Yeah. Yep, that's true. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. But I mean, so he basically lasted what? Uh, maybe a few short of 19 uh, issues. So it's, it's a pretty good run, almost two years. Yeah. Plus, yep. he has the the um, miniseries coming up and he also did a lot of the original original series which was the volume one mm-hmm. right. which we haven't got around to reviewing yet so he he did more than his share i guess yeah cool Just, he'll be well, missed oh he will be missed he will be missed uh, the next two issues i think are not as high quality but uh i do like weinstein his writing also but it's just peter david's really good <laughs> really good so I did notice that on page eight, for some reason, Purcell drew Kirk significantly taller than Chekhov. I thought that was odd. I, I think the artwork is pretty good in general, but I just didn't well, know is why it, he looked that is, much taller. Isn't Kirk taller than Chekhov? I don't think by much. They're both relatively short men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. That that page eight, I mean, not not about the artwork, but just... Having Chekhov lay into this guy, saying that uh, 
that they're they're just not to think they're just to do what they're told right i don't That's... see that coming out of chekhov now and and you know he wouldn't really mean that but it was more like something to to say and what about the things that i forgot the name of the more surly jaded security guy it's like oh, yeah, he, he was a jerk he's a jerk it's like hey you're not starfleet pal boy you 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 really should watch your mouth <laughs> well he is starfleet though i mean why well, no but, but he, yeah, he is, but I'm, I'm saying that's not okay. Maybe we're used to seeing officers or something. Right, but, he's know. just a grunt. Well, as he as he says himself. Yeah, I was. A lot of people seemed overly uh, angry. I mean, even Kirk himself when he, when you know, Ensign Lee just says, "Hey, you know, is this a stage one or a stage two beam down?" Right, and Kirk just is a total jerk. <laughs> right, in front of everybody, the whole the whole. The whole senior staff's here. This is your first away mission. You yeah. ask a pretty innocent question. Right. And your captain is just like, you idiot. <laughs> he, well, he wasn't He wasn't that bad, but yeah. Uh-oh. Very condescending. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was shocked when I was reading it. I was like, really? No wonder you feel bad that you don't know this guy because you were a total jerk to him. <sighs> Before he saved your life. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I thought he was out of character there, and then yeah. I thought Chekhov was out of character, and then you know I don't know this 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 other guy, Mister Hunter, but but he was a total jerk too. Oh, the the other security guy or who? Yeah, the 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 security guy that changes colors because <laughs> most of the time he's gray, but there on page ten he suddenly turns Caucasian. Oh right, right, right. You're right. Yeah, that that is funny, isn't it? I thought he was an alien because he's gray. There's no two ways about it. He is gray in right. most of the comic, but definitely agreed, not on page 10. Very so odd. I was like, I was wondering too, is he an alien and he's just, you know, kind of thrown off because Kirk just told him that he was going to get, throw him in the brig for insubordination. But I, I really think it was just a miscoloring on that page. Probably. But wasn't Vice Admiral uh, Jerkface? Yeah. What, what was his name? Tomlinson. Tomlinson, him. Wasn't he gray, too? Yeah. Of course, he turned out to be a Klingon, but still. Yeah, which we haven't seen that come back up yet. Um, we need to no. revisit that. Yeah, where is where did he go? I mean, it wouldn't, shouldn't they really catch him or something? Maybe. 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 Haven't seen it yet. Maybe. And uh, he was a Peter David character. So It's true. I don't know. I hope, I hope we'll see him again. I hope it doesn't get dropped. They can well, drop the we'll Sala, see. but that that Tomlinson guy. Is <laughs> the <a> Sala. <laughs> yeah, but to, yeah, Tomlinson is a Klingon double agent in Starfleet and yeah. pretty high up. Uh, yeah, that's he's admiral he, now. He he got promoted to admiral in the last right. issue. And it's like, come on, why'd you do that? I mean, he was a jerk. <laughs> I mean, uh, what uh, 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 what's the admiral that's usually uh, Kirk's superior? It's- Nagoya, Nagoya. There you something. go, Nagoya. Nagoya pulled uh, Tomlinson on the on the carpet for what he was doing, and, and then he gets promoted anyway. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, I thought it was very interesting when Spock was talking about uh, Ensign Lee's last uh, last moments of life. So. It was, uh, you know, it's not all the times when when somebody is in somebody's mind, you know, who's dying. I mean, a Vulcan mind meld when, you know, somebody's going to die. That's kind of uh, interesting, unfortunately. 
I thought it was interesting also when Bach was saying what happens when you die. No great being to raise you up. No specter of death with a, with a scythe. You just stop. Which is interesting because isn't that the kind of conversation that Spock pushed McCoy off from having in Star Trek Four? Right. When he said, but you would have no point of reference, so the conversation would be irrelevant. And of all the people to talk about how final death is, right. Spock, Spock probably shouldn't be that person. Because Spock knows that if when you die, there is a way to have your consciousness continue and then, in his case, actually be put back into a body and still live again. So right. I, I kind of thought but. that's where they were going with it, that he was doing the mind meld at the time of his death and he was going to somehow... He had his Katra? Yeah. Huh. Something like that. But then oh. he just talked about how he could just feel his being pass from one one plane of existence to to being nothing. Yeah. Anyway, kind of uh kind of heavy stuff, man. And, I did uh, like the last thought of of Ensign Lee being I can't wait to go swimming again. Yeah, it's like I, I agree. I agree with that. It's like it's a simple it's a simple thought, but totally out of place. So what's that trying to tell you? That at the point of death you know, his mind went went cuckoo or uh or maybe he was in heaven or something. Can't wait to go swimming. Uh I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I that's, it, I, that's the way I like to think of it, that last one. Right. Right. Um I think his brain just went fried, but you know <laughs> that's that's me being negative. <laughs> But, well, here in the next couple issues, you can be negative some more then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I have to say about this one is, uh, last thing to say is, I like how Kirk was dealing with the Hagee pirates, or however you pronounce it, when right. they were in the brig after they caught them. So especially when the, the, the Hagee pirate captain went, went on and on about how uh, the Federation was weak and he knew exactly what was going on, and that Kirk is weak because of their rules, and he's tough. And it just reminded me of like a Dirty Harry movie or something, the original Dirty Harry movie, you know, when the when the slimy uh, bad guy is going, you know, I know how to play the system, and I'll be out uh, almost as soon as you book me, Callahan. And then, uh, of course, you know, Dirty Harry does his thing, but uh, but then I like how 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 Kirk uh, handles it without necessarily the gun, but just say, uh, yeah, turning over the Sandar who apparently are not nice people. Yeah. I liked, I like I like that scene too, but I was really worried up until the point where he said he was going to take him to the Sandar Cause I half expected him to say, I'm going to drop you off on another planet somewhere. Like, like I've done con <laughs> and as I've seen, you know, as they did a lot of times in the gold key stuff where, that was his solution, you know. He catches the bad guy, and then you drop him off on some planet somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I, I almost thought that's where he was going to go with this one, and I'm like, oh, do not do that, do not do that. And then the whole sand, Sandar thing, and I was like, okay, I like that. That's that's actually good. <laughs> Let somebody else do your dirty work. <laughs> but technically speaking, I guess they had jurisdiction. So hey, you know what can I do? I'm just going by the rules. <laughs> so who did you think that uh, Ventura looked like to you? I had to look at him again. He did not strike me as anyone in particular. Well, I know who I think. I know who I think he looks like. Who's but that? But it's not. I don't think it's anybody uh, you would know. 
Uh, there's uh, in the new TV show Falling Skies. There's a character who is uh, basically a career criminal who is helping the remainder of society. He, he's like an anti-character. He's kind of like a Han Solo kind of thing. Okay. Uh, but but even more anti. But he's really funny and uh, and you know you, you kind of get the feeling he's he's helping people anyway, even though he is kind of a jerk and kind of, kind of a criminal. He looks just like that guy. That's who I think he looks like. Who do you think he looks like? Well, for most of it, I kept thinking that he looked like uh, Liam Neeson's character in Star Wars fan- Episode One. Oh, Quai Chang, Quai Qui Gon Jinn. Qui Gon Jinn. There you go. Yeah, so I kept thinking he looked like a cross between Qui Gon Jinn and Jesus with the, uh, <laughs> the hair and the beard. Well, but, as soon as you started talking, I started thinking he's not going to say Jesus, is he? Okay, <laughs> he did. There he was did say times Jesus. He did kind of look like that. Yeah, he does a little bit, right? But there on page twenty-one, when he's kind of like, "Oh, I know the, I know the law," kind of thing. <laughs> to me, he that top panel on page twenty-one, he looks like Ringo Starr with long hair. <laughs> yeah, he does a little bit. So, <sighs> I just thought that was funny. But George I don't know that Falling Sky guy, so. I'll take your word for it. He's been in other things too, but you, unless you, if you saw an episode of Falling Sky with him in it, you you would say yes, yes, that's right. I I, I see it again. You say that, but just take my word for it. <laughs> All right, I will. Okay, good. Best two. Number twenty. Yep, let's go. Okay, issue twenty is uh, first of a two-parter, and this one's titled God's Gauntlet. It was published in June of 1991. Writer is Howard Weinstein. Penciler Gordon Purcell, inker Arnie Starr, letterer Bob Pinaha, colorist Tom McCraw, and editor Robert Greenberger. The cover shows Kirk on a communicator looking up into the sky with McCoy behind him. McCoy is looking distressed. They are on an alien world that is undergoing some kind of calamity. Ceilings are falling in on blue-skinned aliens who are behind them. Out of a cracking circular window is a mad black tornado ripping through the skyscrapers of of a cityscape. Ragged text says, A world gone mad. The story opens aboard the Enterprise, where Kirk is walking on a garden deck with Ambassador Goffin of Lyric 4. The three-fingered, lanky, purple alien is admiring the garden area and stating how the Lyricans have much in common with the people of the Federation of Planets. Kirk comments how their planet's capital city of Axua is reputed to be one of the most beautiful capitals in all the galaxy. Kirk is hailed by Spock, who reports they are entering orbit around Lyric 4. However, sensors scans have uncovered some unsettling discoveries. Kirk and the ambassador head for the bridge. On the bridge, Mr. Spock reports that the capital city is in ruins and not by natural disaster. Lines of destruction and residual radiation indicate it was destroyed by war. The ambassador cries out for his beautiful capital city, Aksua, then faints. With the ambassador recovering from shock in sickbay, Kirk attempts to speak to Prime Minister Davika, but instead can only speak to her chief of staff, Druick. Druick says Kirk cannot speak to the Prime Minister due to the many emergencies she is currently dealing with. The conversation goes on to discover that the Lyrican government has not applied for the Federation membership, as Kirk was led to believe from the Ambassador. 
In fact, Avika says that Goffin is no ambassador, but he is the Prime Minister's deputy, and as such, her second-in-command, who has been missing for two weeks. Kirk confirms that Goffin has done all of this on his own, and the Lyrican government is not applying for membership. Druick says their people have enough of their own internal problems to worry about without dealing with an application to the Federation. Kirk says he will prepare a Goffin for transport down to the planet shortly. Kirk goes to sickbay and lays into Goffin and his deception. Goffin admits he lied about the application of the Federation, but thought if they could come to his world, they could meet Lyrican's leaders and help mediate an end to the civil war that is tearing his world apart. Kirk gets over his anger with a little prodding from McCoy. He agrees to take Goffin down himself and attempt to see the Prime Minister again, but if she rejects seeing Kirk a second time, he will have to take no for an answer. Goffin is smiling Jack with the news and shakes Kirk's hand energetically. On the planet, they are rejected again from seeing the Prime Minister. McCoy talks Kirk into trying one more time. They enter the Prime Minister's office, who immediately reacts by saying, Who the heck are you, and what are you doing in my office? Kirk personally offers the Federation's aid. The PM again rejects outsiders' aid. Goffin pleads with the PM and states the only common ground with the reversionists, Revels, are on the battlefield. A quake hits and tosses the PM's office and occupants around the room. Kirk calls up the Enterprise. Spock reports a sizable seismic dislocation took place close to their location. McCoy sarcastically says, tell me about it. And Spock says, I shall. It measures 8.5 on the Richter scale. He goes on to say, this is not an ordinary quake. There was no indication of instability along the nearby fault prior to or after the quake. Very strange. The Lyricans tell Kirk and McCoy of the not-so-natural disasters that have plagued their world starting about six months ago. Raging fires, rains, floods, eruptions. Some say it's the will of Olam, their traditional god, that most modern Lyricans do not take seriously. The rebel reversionists want the people of Lyrican to embrace their god and the holy ways of the past. They were a small minority, but since the natural disasters started happening, their numbers have swelled. To counteract the rebels' growing power, they have to explain rationally why these disasters are taking place. Their technology so far has been un unable to do that, but a starship's facilities may be able to shed light on what is really happening. The PM asks if Kirk's ship can find out what is happening. She says they can try, but no guarantees. She asks him to proceed. On the Enterprise, Spock and Chekhov take careful sensor readings trying to find out if the unusual spat of disasters are indeed natural. Meanwhile, Kirk and McCoy are on the planet having dinner with the Prime Minister and Goffin. After pleasantries are exchanged, Concerning the excellent food, Kirk asks how the deep division between the government and the reversionists came to be. The PM and Goffin explain that traditionally Lyric was essentially a theocracy. About 30 years ago, Davik's father, Irden, 
who was the then Prime Minister, saw that in order to better integrate trade and other interplanetary endeavors, Lyric has to change. Modernity for Lyric was a goal to be achieved. Those that were aligned with the strongly religious elements of the theocracy formed the revisionist movement. Part of their warnings to return to the traditional religious ways included dire consequences such as natural disaster. The PM states that if the Federation technology cannot come up with a rational scientific explanation for the disasters, the revisionist explanation will be the only explanation, and they will continue to gain power. Kirk says rational explanations do not always convince the faithful. Spock calls down and reports they do not have a scientific explanation yet, but of more immediate concern is the large atmospheric disturbance heading to their exact location. Kirk says it's like nothing he has ever seen before. Communication is cut off as well as transporter locks, which strands Kirk and McCoy on the planet. As Scotty in the transporter room and Chekhov on sensors try to break through the storm's interference, which Scotty describes as thermonuclear popcorn, Chekhov reports the storm's magnitude is 9.6 and increasing. Scotty reports that he has a lock on four life forms, and Spock orders, Energize! The Prime Minister's building is utterly destroyed by the superstorm. Spock asks Scotty if he has them. Scotty can just look on in wide-eyed surprise and say in a weak voice, Dear God! To be continued. Isn't it fitting that the last two words in the comic are Dear God? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> definitely there is a, there's a theme here. Religion and science and the proper balance of the two in a, quote, modern society or whatever. So, yes. Yes. Which Star Trek has... They This is not new territory for Star Trek stories. No. Especially original series and more so even uh, Next Generation. And even Voyager. Uh, did Voyager have have that much? Voyager had a great episode where secular non-religiously oh, or- right, oriented right. Captain Janeway at the beginning of the episode questions her complete rejection of any kind of religion by the end of the episode. So, Well, even that, that episode with, with the dinosaurs on Voyager, uh, I mean, the, the whole thing on that episode was <sighs> that that this, these dinosaurs found out that they they didn't you know, they weren't created on this side of the galaxy and, and the galaxy wasn't created for them because they actually were descendants from this other planet on the other side of the galaxy and, and how the government was like, oh, you can't tell anybody that because that's, you know, heresy and was trying to keep the, uh, keep the scientists, keep the scientists down from, from telling everybody what his findings were. So basically, you know, kind of the same thing where... A religion of some sort is is being uh, tested, and and you're it's kind of the opposite. Instead of instead of we're not going to accept the religion at all because it's stupid, they're saying we're going to accept it because it is stupid, and and maybe not stupid, but it's just <laughs> it's just frustrating on on how you can't have a religion and enjoy science fiction at the same time that they're somehow mutually exclusive. 
can't enjoy science fiction, or you, well, you, you, can't. you can't have modern, well, modernity. I mean, I, I think there's a place for both in I, a modern society. I agree, but yeah. but these Star Trek stories that we're talking about, they really push that you have to believe in one or the other. You're either, you know, scientific and and you know there's no you know spiritual world, or you're spiritual and you're kind of a kooky person. <laughs> <coughs> True, and, and I think I think that's part of the reason they had Kira Norris, uh and, and her people in um, in Deep Space Nine. To, to help explore that part of it, because traditionally Star Trek hadn't. Uh, and definitely that episode of Voyager that I mentioned before uh, was also a nod to, to maybe, you know, maybe life shouldn't all be just uh, cold rationalism. Well, even Kira Norris and the whole Bajorans thing, I mean, even though they were, you know, quote-unquote God-fearing people... Their gods still ended up being wormhole aliens, you know, and not a benevolent, you know, not an entity that actually created them or anything like that. They were just aliens that happened to have somewhat supernatural powers in their eyes. So right. they were basically worshipping a false god all along anyways. And, yeah, but, but after you know, they found the- out about that, they, they didn't re- – as I recall, they did not reject their religion, did they? They didn't, but still they had the Federation people making snide comments every once in a while that they were <laughs> worshipping wormhole aliens. Oh, I don't And know, there maybe. was the whole, I mean, you had, you know, a lot of the big bad guys in Deep Space Nine were religious figures. Wow. Like uh, religious, the, yeah, religious figures that were um, evil you, and corrupt. Well, yeah, I mean, they, well, they, they, they they, they were like the uh, power brokers that were in the Catholic Church back in the um, in the Middle Ages and stuff. Yeah, it's I, like... I get the reference, well. but I'm just saying, even when they're trying to show that that you know there could be a religious belief even in the future, they still kind of do it halfway, and they still kind of belittle it a little bit. I think. Yeah. Well. But anyways, yeah. So that's so uh, definitely, and especially when we get into the second comic, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, 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 those of you out there that uh, you know are are, are religious uh, probably won't like that episode <laughs> or that that issue. <laughs> spoiler, kid. I know it's a spoiler, <laughs> but come on. I mean, come on. We're going to talk about it in in like ten minutes. So yeah, we are. Hopefully, shorter than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I had – okay, Just I just want to mention a few things. I, I had the strong feeling at the end of this issue that uh, Druick, the uh, – like, kind of like the assistant of the prime minister, I thought he was in on it because he wasn't in the building. He kept on telling Kirk and Spock – or Kirk and Spock – or Kirk, mainly, uh, can't talk to you. I, I just thought it was convenient that he was not there for the uh, destruction of the uh, of the palace or White House or whatever the hell they call their uh, – the PM's uh, place, 10 Downing right. Street, whatever. I'll be uh, honest, I had a hard time figuring out who was who half the time. Oh. Because it seemed well, like their colorings changed from page to page, and then I was never right. sure if if this person was supposed to be the prime minister or, you know, the the second 
What's his name? Grissom? Cross, uh, what's his name? Um, I, uh, I don't know that it matters that much, but... Uh, you know what I'm saying, right? They yeah. uh, Goffin. So I couldn't tell what, okay, who was so, Goffin, who was the prime minister, and who was the aide. Well, the, the aide, Druk, um, I thought him and Goffin were a little bit more confusing for me than the prime minister. Because you can kind of tell she was female, and wasn't she like gray or something? She's I mean, kind she, of a, a, a greenish color. Okay, so she was a greenish. And that's another thing. You know, at first I was thinking, what the heck are all these every every main character from this uh from this place, well, the, the female and the male anyway, they're different colors. But right. the thing about uh Gre- Druk, the assistant, that guy's got a little chin, a little chin a fuzz. He's got a little like a uh, like a little goat beard kind of thing coming off his chin. So that's how I that's how I told the difference. But they all look like Yu-Gi-Oh characters or something. It's, oh. they, they got the weird hair going and the eyebrows. Oh my god! Yeah, some of them have real eyebrows, and then other ones look like they just have little studs or something for eyebrows. Right. Yeah, uh, Goffin has the really weird eyebrows. Yeah, I never know. I didn't notice the the beard on the aide, so that might have helped me out. I well, I finally went back just to make sure I could tell a difference. And when I went to back to the beginning of the issue where we first meet uh, Druk, uh, that's when I noticed he had a little beard, a chin beard thing. Yeah, because there's a, an event in the next story where I had mixed the two of them up and it would have played out completely different. Oh, there you go. So that would have been good information to have back then. Right. So the last thing I just wanted to mention about it is... Um, Okay, I already I already mentioned about the uh, the Yu-Gi-Oh hair. Mm-hmm. No, that's oh I just wanted to mention the last thing I want to mention is that I saw what was happening in this issue was starting to remind me an awful lot about um, the Middle East, and uh, I think you see other things in it, but definitely I see the Middle East where there are um, uh, religious extremists. At least that's what I'll call them, um, who are trying to push a theology, uh, and then there's other elements that uh, of the government in, in some of these countries that are uh, are trying to be uh, quote modern, you know, trying to embrace modernity as opposed to uh, rejecting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw a lot of that in some countries in the Middle East. So that's what I was saying, the parallels. Right. No, I, I can see that. Or just any religious – I mean I was also seeing, you know, the you know, the Puritans and, and, you know, even the founding of the United States also was kind of, kind of there too where you had – you know, you didn't have a separation of the church and state kind of thing. Right. And uh, yeah, but well, no, you you did because that's in the Constitution. No, uh, I'm saying like like the reason why they came. Oh, what well, it's sorry. Oh, one of the reasons they came from Europe, right? Exactly, right. especially right. England. Right. right. A lot of religious persecution. Yeah, sorry right. about that. Sorry, good wasn't point. clear. Good point. But um, I'm sure we'll get into that more in the next issue because it I think it plays out a little bit more. It does, and boy, the writers come down on one side pretty heavy, don't they? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so anything else? 
No. That's it for Art, that. Artwork I thought was good, except for the aliens kind of looking too much like each other. Uh, yeah. But, you know, once you see one alien, they kind of all look the same. Exactly. And they just, they're just extreme looking, which it's fine. They're an alien. I mean, they're supposed to. <laughs> I, mean, they, <laughs> I mean, they can't be all Vulcans that just have pointy ears and eyebrows. I mean, some of them really should look a lot different from people. So that's good. It's just I just thought they were kind of unsettling. I actually liked the way they looked. Um, I just thought that they all looked a little too much alike. But that's just me. Cool. All right. Ready to go into 21? Yes. Born ready. All right. So this one is entitled God's Gauntlet Chapter 2, The Last Stand. And I think all the writing staff is the same. So yes. I won't, I won't go through that. So the cover is uh, Kirk and McCoy on a planet, that, and they're being pelted by rain or sleet of some sort. Uh, behind them, we see aliens praying as buildings around them are being destroyed uh, by lightning and, and the wind and things like that. And then up in the sky, we see Spock's face uh, looming over them uh, in the clouds. So it's kind of a... a Surreal picture of, of of Spock kind of looking down at this uh, chaos. Were you going to say something? No. no. Oh, I heard. So it was either you or a snake. I wasn't sure. <laughs> okay, so the story starts off with Scotty at work on the transporter con- console. Uh, he's still working to get McCoy, Kirk, and the aliens beamed up uh, out of the destroyed building from the last issue. Uh, at the last moment, right when the, the building is completely pulverized, uh, there he's able to, to rematerialize the four people. Uh, but he plays it cool by saying, piece of cake, sir. So Kirk meets with Spock about the phenomenon going on on the surface. Spock is uh, noticing some strange readings from space uh, in orbit around the planet, but he's unable to pinpoint anything. Ahura informs Kirk that there is a call coming in from the planet. Kirk orders it on screen, and we're introduced to a character named Yuslav. Yuslav is uh, the religious leader, and he invites Kirk to beam down so that he can hear his side of the story and and experience their point of view in the conflict. Uh, Kirk has a meeting with his staff. Uh, Chekhov requests a full security team to accompany Kirk if he does beam down. Kirk says that he will be beaming down alone as a f- gesture of good faith. Uh, he also orders Spock to continue to search for the source of the phenomenon. So on the planet, Kirk meets with Yuslav, and they exchange a weird double-fisted, a double-handed fist bump uh, in greeting. So it was kind of weird to see Kirk, that he knew this gesture. Um, Oslav uh, shows Kirk around uh, his mountaintop base. Uh, he explains that this is, sacred, this is a sacred place where their religion started. Uh, this is where um, they refer to him as the Olam, came down and gave them the laws uh, that uh, is the basis of their their whole entire faith. He also says that uh, this is a place of miracles. Uh, During the tour, he shows Kirk a cannon, or Kirk sees a cannon, but then uh, Oslav states that they have had no use for the cannon in months because Olam himself 
is fighting for them because they've been praying to it. And and you see like a a, a statue of some sort of a star, and they call it the Star of Olam. So uh, Kirk is having dinner with Oslav, and when – okay, let me start over again. Kirk is having dinner with Oslav when Spock calls in to check, or he calls to check in. Uh, Kirk states that he is ready for beam-up, but Oslav asks him to hold on just a minute longer. And at that moment, Goffin, the uh, government second-in-command that we saw last issue, arrives. Uh, he says that there are many within Davika's government uh, that still want the old ways, the religious ways. And he states that if they can convince Davika to um, readopt the old religion, that they could uh, bring an end to this whole war. And uh, Oslov agrees to this and, and wants to meet with Davika to talk about, um, about this uh, reconversion. So later in the observation room on the Enterprise, uh, the room with the big sailing ship wheel, uh, Kirk is discussing the situation with Spock and McCoy. Spock informs them of all the Prime Directive rules that they're breaking by interfering with the Civil War, uh, to which McCoy tells him to shut up. Spock gives an update on the strange readings. Uh, he thinks that he knows the origin of, of the energy, but he cannot get any readings from the ship. Uh, Kirk orders him to continue uh, his scans, and he returns to the surface. So once he's on the surface, he's meeting with Davika, and she informs him that she refuses to meet with Oslov and his people. In orbit, Spock takes a shuttle from the Enterprise to investigate the readings. Uh, en route, he encounters some incredible turbulence, and the shuttle is actually destroyed. Back on the planet, McCoy and Kirk are having... a uh, Back on the planet, McCoy. Blah. Back on the planet, McCoy and Kirk are making no headway in convincing Davika to negotiate with the religious leaders. Just then, an assassin jumps into the courtyard and takes a shot at Davika. Kirk is able to wrestle him down, but not before Davika is shot and dies. The assassin turns out to be Goffin, and he tells Kirk that it had to be done. Just then. Just then, the air crackles with energy, and the star of Olam appears in front of them. From it, Spock steps out, and the star turns into some sort of face. Spock introduces the face as Rala, and explains that they are a race uh, that are not deities of themselves, but they do pose as deities to primitive cultures such as the Lurkins. Uh, they do this to help guide these cultures to rise above their savage origins. When they think that the culture has advanced to a, a degree that they're no longer needed, they reveal themselves and the cultures are allowed to choose their own fate. Uh, he, tells that, he tells them that the Lurkins have passed the final test because Davika never gave in and started praying again to Olam to stop all the disasters that was going on. Rala brings Davika back to life, but he refuses to fix any of the other damage as a reminder to future generations that they always need to rely on themselves and not on false gods. There is a closing scene back on the Enterprise with Kirk, McCoy, and Spock having coffee. Uh, McCoy compares Rala to Apollo from the original series and Cybok's god, 
that was in quotes, uh, from Star Trek V. Spock corrects him and states that Rala was only using their powers to help these civilizations and not necessarily to uh, cause other races to worship them you know, for the self-glory. So Kirk then wonders aloud, which is a big surprise, he wonders aloud if they'll ever meet the real god. And then McCoy says that if they ever do, then Spock will give them a scare uh, due to his devilish looks. And then we get a little blurb that next month, the return of Harry Mudd. Your favorite! <laughs> <laughs> so, again, this, this, this story, like last story, even more so than last story, very anti-religious, I think. But then they finish it with, I wonder if God's really out there. And you're just like, really? <laughs> it just seems <laughs> odd that in both stories they end it with, with the possibility that there is a real God, but they've gone the whole story to explain that there's not. Well, for did, these people. For these explain? people. There's, well, well, I mean, the Enterprise crew? I mean, well, it, seems, it seems like these starfish gods are the guy, are these, these, and they look like they look like uh, like the like the gold stars you got when you were in kindergarten or something. <laughs> it's like I, I, I gotta tell you, I'm not crazy about uh, about the art choices in this one. <laughs> what was it, Purcell? Yeah, Purcell did this one. Yep, not not too crazy about the starfish uh, guys. Well, there was only one guy, and yeah, he did look like well, a starfish. But, but he's he's from a whole group. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, right. Actually, he looks like a a huge golden ninja throwing star. That's what he really looks like. He does. <laughs> <laughs> and and I must say, I do. I am. I kind of dig on the artwork where uh, where the ninja throwing star with the face is right in Kirk's face. Right. Uh, and he's got like 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 fire coming out of his eyes. That is kind of cool looking. So that's on page. Uh, let me see what twenty two. Exactly page twenty. Top of page twenty two. But other than that, stupid. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I agree with you that he looks stupid all the time. <laughs> okay, well, whatever. I'm trying to I'm trying to throw him a bone. Come on. Yeah, but I, and I was never sure if he looked like that just because that was how they presented themselves, you know, way back when, and that's what they've built all these statues right. to worship them as. Well, I thought it was the other way around. I thought he presented himself. I thought these creatures presented themselves as God, which really <clears throat> annoyed, chaps my hide. Okay, so explain why it chaps your hide. Well, because I, I thought these guys were passing themselves off as gods. And going, yeah, yeah, we're gods, gods, and let's, let's demonstrate some stuff for you. Gods, gods, gods. Oh, we expect you to get over the god thing, even though we're like, you know, coming down from the sky and uh, having re- wreaking disaster that nobody could explain any other way. Right. I just, it just, I don't know, it just kind of chaps my hide. Well, yeah, they 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 let them go five thousand years believing in them. Yep. And then. Then they start testing them by creating all these natural disasters. And as long as the leader of the planet doesn't start praying to you, then that means that you pass. They, they've, they've, they've passed. <laughs> <laughs> what a tease. And, obvious, and obviously, I know that 
they're talking about starfish-looking aliens, but yeah. come on, they're they're not talking about that. They're talking about any religion here in the United States or in the world. You know, that's really what what this whole story is about. That you know, or at least that's the way I see it. That that you shouldn't when bad stuff happens, you shouldn't pray to a deity. You should <coughs> man up and and deal with it. Or at least that's what an enlightened person would do. Well, yeah, and and the thing is, definitely, okay, we're still going to get into a little bit of uh, religious discussion here. And uh, both Donovan and I are religious, by the way, folks. Um, however, I will say that there are, there are some religions that are pretty extremist, and there are people in this country that are like they're not going to actually do anything because uh about the cancer they have because they're going to pray to god and god is going to, to save them and it's like god might do that because i do believe in god but it's like <laughs> you, you 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 can't you can't give up your 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 right to try to live your life because you think all you have to do is go on cruise control and just pray to God and everything's going to be great it's like you can go too far with religion and uh anyway right but i mean but in this story did you get that these people had given up all scientific ways of of explaining what was going on and ways to help their help after these storms were destroying their buildings. I mean, I never got any any indication that everybody was just giving up and and all they were doing was praying. I mean, even the guys that were on the mountain didn't seem like that was what they were doing. Well, no, because they wanted to take over the uh they wanted to take over the government and right. get people back to religion and and the gods were doing <laughs> they were doing their bidding. It's like well, why should I be unhappy? I mean, the uh, the I mean, when when the god is sending storms that target individual buildings and destroy them of your enemy, it's like, well, I don't have to do much. <laughs> right, but but they still had a cannon there, so that if if which they hadn't used in what did he say a month? Month. He said months or or months. Well, six right. maybe six months ago since uh, God started doing their job for him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But they still had the tools there in case God stopped doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Well, yeah. And what? Hmm. That and and that kind of brings in a, a, an interesting thing. Ah, uh, I mean, resorting to violence and cannons to uh, to, <laughs> to 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 you know to, to force people to be religious. I don't. I don't know. That's well. I mean, uh, we don't know the basis of their their religion. I mean. It, May it was maybe it's like a Klingon religion where it's a little more aggressive. <laughs> we all want to go to Savalcore or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, you know. I, yeah, I definitely agree with you that despite the details of what was going on, and there was some muddled stuff going on here, this was something that was basically um, speaking against uh, religion. Uh, having too much direct say in uh, 
in big things that go on, government things going on. Well, not only that, they were just saying if you believe, I mean, really it all came down to one person. But if one person even, you know, at all prayed to what they've believed and what they have, you know, evidence of of being a a true deity, you know, an intervening deity, you would just keep killing all these people just to kind of prove your point that, you know, aha, you're, you're, you still believe in me, so I get to kill, keep killing you until you stop believing in me. It just, (laughs) oh, it was, it, it was modeled. It did not make sense. Yeah, it was definitely a model story. But they bring her back to life, but all the other people that have died during these horrible things. Right. Because remember, when they first arrived at the planet, that whole city was completely destroyed. The the city that that Goffin was The capital cities. Yeah, the capital city. Right. Oxor or whatever. So you would think that millions and millions of people would have would have died. Right. And that's just the latest disaster in a six months worth of disasters. Right. So you're just like Yeah, this this whole um this whole advanced being that does the opposite of the prime directive is like, uh, these guys suck. <laughs> yeah, they do suck. They suck. I mean, they gotta let, they gotta let these people do what they're you know. <laughs> and I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I, I think I really did not like this story. Yeah, right, right, right. Any story that tells you that if you believe in something, if you believe in anything bigger than yourself, you're stupid. That that chaps me the wrong way. Yeah. Even if I don't believe in it, or if I, you just shouldn't. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't. <laughs> I, I I agree with that. It's just that there's two sides to this. One is you shouldn't tell somebody you're a buffoon because you believe in a higher power. On the other hand, you shouldn't become dependent on it and think that that's going to solve all your problems for you. You've got okay. to get up and make things happen. Uh, you know, with you and the people around you. Uh, but I agree, but I never once got the the sense of what you're saying there that that uh, that they had given up hope on any scientific explanation and they were only relying on prayer. But I mean, well, but, well, but come on, well, okay. even if you could figure out, even if you knew what was going on, and like during, well, the prime minister definitely wasn't doing that. Well, they weren't praying, right? But I didn't yeah, get the sense she hadn't that given up. That that's all they were doing. Well, Goffin sure did. But the oh, prime no. minister hadn't. Goffin fact, was still... I, I, I don't like Goffin at all, by the way. I mean, uh, he, he's no, deceitful. Uh-huh. He's gone back and forth multiple times. And then finally ends up killing the prime minister. Um, and then he's I, like, I, I, I'm I, sorry I, I killed you. It's okay, <laughs> I'll forgive you. I just won't turn <laughs> my back on you for a while. Huh? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, I love that. Yeah, so, you know, I, mean, I, I, I think Goffin was trying to do what he thought was going to save his people uh, from, you know, from 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 a civil war, uh, from what he saw as an extremist in this prime minister that wouldn't compromise. Um, But still, I mean, the guy was just two timing people and, you know, bouncing back and forth. Yeah, I liked him at the beginning, but then it's like he was lying all the time. <laughs> anyway, so what do you think about Spock 
dying again, and then the 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 starfish aliens saved him. Oh, I thought that was. I was like, well, did you have to? Did... Did you have to resurrect him again? It's like, hasn't the guy been resurrected enough times already? <laughs> I, I I thought it was kind of extreme. As a matter of fact, when the shuttle blew up, I was like, what? Wait, okay, obviously he didn't die. But come on. What well, what are they doing here? Okay, how well, are they going to get him out of there? Okay, whatever. Yeah, and what gets me is that they kill him in one panel. I mean, he's in the shuttle, and then he dies in the next panel. Yeah. It's like, there was no lead-up to any type of real suspense. It was just, I'm jumping in the shuttle. Holy crap, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, and of course they showed the shuttle blowing up from the outside, so you didn't get to see him say, uh, I really look forward to going swimming. So <laughs> you didn't get any of that. No, he was just dead. But and, no, yeah. and no McCoy there to grab a Contra. Okay, so the last thing I was interested in uh, mentioning to you is crazier than a soup sandwich, which is something Mr. Scott says. Uh, in in the issue and it is very quotable but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me i i've never heard that saying before i have heard that saying before really yeah crazier than a soup sandwich okay yeah it just means that it doesn't so, so make you, sense so you heard somebody say that okay. i have heard it somewhere that's cool uh so so it's supposed to be like literally a sandwich made out of soup uh-huh and that's crazy because you can't pick it up okay Never heard it before. That's all I have to say. That's my last comment. <laughs> I have... Hold on one second. I'll, yeah, there it is. I just looked it up online, and, and there's there's <laughs> examples of it. This guy's crazier than a soup sandwich. See? I've never heard of it before. Yeah, I've heard I it. Mean, I don't know where I've heard it from. Yeah. It, I don't think it's commonly used. Well... Either I mean, it's is, interesting. Either is Maynard, but you were saying it earlier. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I guess there are many regional, perhaps, uh, things. <laughs> but crazy in the soup sandwich? Oh my god! Oh well, whatever. Okay, but yeah, um, it doesn't sound like a very uh, Scottish thing to say. Uh, that or else I was thinking it was something that Weinstein made up or something, but apparently not. So he did not make it up. He did not. Sorry. Apparently. Apparently. Just like Khan did not make up, revenge is a, best, a dish best served cold. Yes. Well, let's not get into that because, uh, <laughs> I mean, the real place where that came from. Yeah, we've talked about it like two or three times now. Haven't we? Exactly. <laughs> Anyways. And then I got to say it again. I love Kill Bill. Where they oh, got... where they reference the Klingon proverb? They call it a Klingon proverb. Revenge is a dish best served cold. That's great. Love that. So the last thing I have to say about this is that weird fist bump thing that uh, Kirk does with uh, Oslov. They get down, man. <laughs> it's like, how did he know that that's what you needed to do? It's like this weird hey, like, double fist If you're bump. in diplomacy, if you're Mr. Diplomacy, you find out about these things. Ah, uh, okay. Anyways, just a <laughs> double fist pump. It just looks odd. <laughs> Blood, how's it going? <laughs> I'm down with that, dog. Come on. Double fist pump. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. He. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's odd. But 
you know, you figure everybody doesn't shake hands, but still, how? Yeah, I agree with you. How does Kirk know? Maybe you looked it up. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> but he didn't do it to the prime minister. Ah. <laughs> so maybe it's like a religious thing. Oh, a religious thing, or maybe she's just a little too stiff. Uh huh. Maybe. All right. So uh, you you have anything else? I got nothing else. Nothing. Uh, Okay, well, quickly we'll go over the, the three novels that also came out these, these months. Okay. So in May, there was a Next Generation novel, and, and this was not just a Next Generation novel. It is called the Next Generation, quote-unquote, giant novel. <laughs> <laughs> so on the cover, it's blazing, really the first giant novel. <laughs> uh, it's entitled Vendetta, and it's by a feller by the name of Peter David. Peter David, and so this is, is this like War and Peace or something? Is it really like a lot of pages or what? What's giant about it? It's not all that big. I can go to my bookshelf and pull it out, but uh, you know, I read it as a kid and I didn't think it was too terribly long. <laughs> okay, but uh, that that's what it says on the cover. Well, maybe the marketing guys got their hands on this, and uh, yeah, I don't know, but or maybe they just wanted to not have it as part of the normal. Novel numbering system? I, I don't know. Uh, but anyways, it's a great book. It's, uh, it's a Borg novel. It's based after Best of Both Worlds. Cool. And it really has, you know, Guinan as, as a, a key player and, and kind of gives a little bit of how she has had to deal with the Borg in the past. Oh. Hmm. And um, what's cool about it is it has the Borg trying to create another Locutus, but this time they... They do it with a Ferengi, yeah. so it's kind of like a Ferengi Borg. Yeah, and you got to remember this is Ferengi before Deep Space Nine, where they were turned into the more comical characters. So, you know, he's still supposed to be this like pirate type, you know, lightning whip guy, and then he mm-hmm. ends up becoming uh, a Borg. So it was actually a pretty good story. I don't remember the specifics because you know I read it in 1991, mm-hmm. and I've slept since then. But I remember I really did enjoy it. All right, so the next book that came out in, uh, and I guess this would have been June, was called Renegade. It was an original series novel based in during the uh, original series timeline. I mm-hmm. uh, have not read it, so I can't give you a lot of detail about it, but it's basically some colony, I think it's a, an alien colony, is there's some rebel colonists causing havoc and... You know, just like any of the other Star Trek books, there's a full-scale war, and only the Enterprise can can moderate. So, I haven't read it because, like I said, back in those days, the original series stuff was kind of a, a turn-off for me, so I didn't I didn't get it, unfortunately. But uh, that one was by a gentleman by the name of Gene DeWise. DeWise. So it might have been um, I don't know if it's a woman or a man. All right, and then the last book, July, was a Next Generation novel called Boogeyman by Mel Gildan. Uh, this is, I guess it's a um, one of Picard's old friends from when he was an, uh, a kid, discovers some new race, and he wants Picard to help um, help him out. I haven't read this one either, so I don't can't really give you any specifics. But okay. it has Wesley on the cover, so it can't be that bad. We've commented about how Wesley comes up on covers sometimes for no good reason. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, he he was the the draw for the kids. <laughs> Those wacky kids. Oh man, I forgot what that kid's name was on uh, Galaxy Quest. Oh, that was supposed to be a draw. I mean, same kind of thing, Wesley Crusher, but of Galaxy Quest. Yeah, well, I was gonna make a joke that. Uh, or not know, Galaxy. That, that was the reason why that kid was on all the Galaxy Quest. Quest books. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Sequest. Uh, Sequest. What was his name? That's what I thought you were talking about, but. What was that? Oh, I don't remember. It's just another boy genius, boy kid, whatever. Oh, was he a boy genius too? God, I hate that. He could actually talk to dolphins, or he he created a translating device so that humans could talk to dolphins because he was he was a boy genius. Wow, that is pretty smart. What was his name? Like I care. Josh Lucas was that it? I don't know. I think I only saw like two full episodes of. Sequest. Uh, we watched it almost. I've almost seen the whole first two seasons. My wife's a big fan. Really? Okay. Cool. Jonathan Brandis. That was his name. The actor or the the actor? Yeah. Oh. And you'll notice that he's had a fantastic career since. You're kidding, right? Uh, of course I'm kidding. What do you think? Sarcasm. Sarcasm, my friend. Well, you know he died, right? No. When he was still a kid. Didn't know that. I that's why I'm like, that's why I'm really confused as to where you're going with it. Because <laughs> his name was Lucas in the show. That's where I was getting the, the oh. Lucas from. No, he died. Uh, he was like, he was born a year or two after me, and he died in 2003. So, wow. He was. I guess he was in his 20s. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I think he. I can't remember how he died. But it was early. He was a little young guy. Yet another Oscar unclaimed. Oh, he hanged himself. Oh, that's too bad. I thought it was drugs, but I guess not. Yeah. Well, since this isn't the Sequest episode, comic oh, book yeah. review. We should do a Sequest episode, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Did they actually, I, I suppose I shouldn't even ask, they had comic books for Sequest? Well, they, they yes and no. They were okay. supposed to have several comic books. Only one of them actually ever got published. So there was, there was. I guess they actually made like three or four issues, but the company that was doing it went out of business after the first issue. So, you know, issue two and three were talked about but never seen. Damn. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, big Roy Scheider fan, no two ways about that. I just didn't find the show good. Personally, well, but... I'm sure you, your uh, your wife loves it. I'm sure there's great things about it. I just didn't see it. I didn't give it. I didn't get. I didn't give it enough a chance of a chance. Mark Hamill shows up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anything he's in is good. That's a selling point. Yeah, Corvette Summer. That was a great movie. Yeah, I never saw it. Neither have I. I just remember as a kid, every time it came on TV, they would they would really talk about Luke Skywalker trades in his Starfighter for a Corvette at summer at eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. All right. Well, we were we were trying to wrap it up early, and now we've kind of gone off in the yeah. Because I I, th- I I thought I thought the timing was pretty good. We weren't going too long, but now that's it. That's that's over. We're just. All right, so uh, until next week when we cover Next Generation, 
uh, over these next these last three months, so 19, 20, and 21 of the next generation. Yes. So be back next week. Sounds great. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. 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 Without a minute, can, can, can. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.